Well, thank you for coming. Um, today is the sixth class out of eight. Um, this will be the last class on a singular topic. The last two classes, what I'm planning on doing um, is breaking a little bit, bit away from what the outline says, and we're going to basically just spend the last two course, classes on um, sort of strategy and methods. So we're going to sort of recap a little bit what we've talked about, and we're going to give uh, examples and sort of real-world sort of situations of um, dialoguing with people and talking with people. And I want to do that because of the next discipleship class, which is on discipleship. And in that class, as far as I understand it, they're going to talk a lot about um, how do we actually go about discipling people. And I think that apologetics and discipleship are, you know, they go hand in hand um, because oftentimes who we apologize to first are other Christians, right? So I want to spend some time looking at sort of what I've learned and what's helped me and given me some success as far as going about actually engaging people, how to engage people, how to be um, attractive when you do that and not just be abrasive, right? So learning things like, you know, name calling never convinces anyone, which, yeah, feels like that's the only method. <laughs> Apparently, politicians, that's the only method they can use is ad hominem arguments. It's just, oh, he's, he's an evil person. It's like, well, he, that's not what he's arguing about. So anyways, um, so that's what we're going to do for the last, the last two courses um, is just go over um, some of, the, of my favorite sort of tactics and see how we can actually then implement what we've learned about. Um, so I will go ahead and pray, and then we'll get right into today's course. Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, for this time. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, Lord, I want to I wanna come before you and, and not just pray out of routine or, or anything like that, but I ask that you will be with us today, and that your will will be done in this church, in our lives, that we would be uh, your instruments, and that you would use us to uh, be salt and light to the world and, and to make a change and um, influence people and um, build them up and bring them into relationship with you as much as we can. We pray that you'll use us in that way. We pray all these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. Very good. So just as a little bit of housekeeping, last week we looked at proving the gospel, and if you remember correctly, we really didn't prove the gospel in sort of the classic sense of using evidence or looking at the facts or looking at you know other religions and compare and contrast and that sort of idea. Uh, what we looked at was, based on our model of the class, there are two different sort of presuppositional views you can start from. That is, either we live in a world where it's at least possible that the God of Scripture exists and therefore inspires a book, or we live in a world where, we, where that's not possible. So I gave the example of the two different universes, Middle Earth and Star Wars, and how if we live in Middle Earth, the rules and, and sort of way that that universe operates, operates in that system. So that's the Christian universe. That's the universe in which it's at least possible that God exists. Therefore, if we live in that universe, we should be able to use the evidence. If we live in the other universe where it's not at all possible that God exists, it's not even an option, 
then there's no amount of evidence, there's no amount of reasoning that can get us to that point. Right? So one thing I want to clarify is that if we do in fact live in the universe where it is possible that the God of Scripture does exist, if, if the person's willing to concede that, right? if we ask them, is it possible that I'm right? Is it possible that Scripture can be inspired? And they say, yes, I, I'll grant that that's possible. Right? Then we can go and use the evidence. So one thing I want to make clear is that the presuppositional method sometimes can be very against using any evidence at all, right? Because, well, that's, that's playing by their rules. But as long as we understand that we are living in the same universe, that we're abiding by the same rules, that it at least is possible that God exists, then we should be able to find evidence that supports that idea. Now, we may not be able to directly argue from like uh, the purity of the New Testament document, we can't necessarily get from there to it's divinely inspired. There's not a direct correlation. But if it is divinely inspired, we would probably expect it to be textually pure, right? If something was inspired by God, if it was authoritative and divine, then it would make sense that it would be reliable as a historical document. It would be reliable as a piece of literature that hasn't been corrupted. So that's how I think we should go about using the evidence. But we need to be careful that we don't start off with the evidence and misunderstand that we might be starting from two totally different foundations, two totally different presuppositions. Okay, so I'm not, I don't want you guys to think that, oh, evidence doesn't matter. We can't use any historical evidence, any literary evidence. We can't talk about anything like that. Um, we just have to stick to arguing about presuppositions. The point is we can use those things, and I think we should. And that's one of the things I appreciate about John Frame is he makes that commitment that our evidentialist partners, the, the, the Christians who take that method, the Christians who take the classical method, actually do in fact hold the same presuppositions we do. They just don't acknowledge them. So that's really the only difference. <clears throat> is that we're explicit in acknowledging them in order to make a better argument. Where I think it, all they do is take it for granted and then they start arguing. The problem with that is, as we've seen, if the person holds a different presupposition, a different foundation, then you could get deep into the argument and realize, wait a minute, there's, there's some, remember, we're missing each other here. Why are we missing each other? Oh, it's because we haven't addressed our foundations. We haven't addressed what we're presupposing. So uh, that's <clears throat> just a little bit of housekeeping on that note. Okay, today we are going to discuss, which Scott, I think, uh, mentioned one of the, in one of the earlier classes, is probably the most frequently raised objection uh, to any sort of theism, but particularly the Christian God because of the way we constantly define God, and that is the problem of evil. So we've probably all heard people make this objection, which that's what this is. This objection is essentially an argument against God's existence or against his goodness, right? So I imagine that we've all sort of experienced someone saying this. Can anyone give an example of, of what someone has said to you? Or, Why is baby sad? Okay, there you go. 
That's one example. That's a that's a sort of a uh, specific example, which is good. No, that works. Anything else? Why are there wars? Why are there wars? God, God is a God of love. <clears throat> Does he allow these things to happen? Right. If he's, if he's in control of all every molecule in the universe, why was he able to keep having the world? Yep. So, as we see, the the problem of evil is really around. It's, it's bringing in the idea of God's sovereignty, God's goodness, which, is, which are something that Christians, we all, all the time we sort of promote those aspects of God. That we say that God is good, right? He is love. God is love. Um, he is sovereign over all things, right? So the argument then is, well, wait a minute. If he's sovereign over all things, if he controls all things, and he's always good, he's perfectly good, then how can there be evil, right? So there's, the point is that we're going to look at today is just by me saying these things, there's a whole bunch of terms that are just being used loosely and there's a whole bunch of presuppositions that are being thrown around in here. So this is what we're going to sort of look at today is where did this problem of evil come from? What are the presuppositions that the person who's making the objection what is he actually holding? What is he presupposing about God? What is he presupposing about himself? Once we understand those things, I think we'll come to a conclusion that'll make it very easy to dialogue with people who make this sort of statement. So that's sort of the goal. As far as the origin of this, um, I'd like to say that as a Christian, as someone who engages in theology, I think that the problem of evil, and we're going to sort of, this is where our conclusion is leading, arises from mankind's rejection of God's sovereign will. That is God's plan. So not necessarily his goodness of character, but it's a rejection of his sovereign will. That is what God actually desires. And we're going to see at the end how that actually plays out. As far as the origin of the actual question, it's been around for a very, very long time. The very first person to get credit for it was a Greek philosopher named Epicurus. Um, I won't, it doesn't matter when that happened. It was thousands of years ago. Um, he came up with what's called the Epicurean riddle. And I'm just going to sort of write it down, and you'll see how this is precisely meant to sort of disprove the existence of an all-good God or a perfectly good God. Okay? So it says, if God is capable, if God is capable of preventing evil, right, but chooses not to, then why do we call him good? If he's capable of preventing evil, but he chooses not to, then why do we call him I'm just sort of, why do we call him good? Again, if God is capable of preventing evil, that is, bad things from happening, but he chooses not to, then why do we call him good? The second portion is, if God desires to prevent evil, but he can't, then why do we call him God? So if he desires to, but is incapable then why do we call him God? And this is 
an argument that is meant to sort of dismantle or disprove the existence of an all good God. So that's what this is meant to do. It's sort of a, a, the logical um, proof that God, a, a perfectly good God, can't exist because of the presence of evil. Now, for our purposes today, we're not going to get into um, St. Augustine's arguments of does evil actually exist? Does it does it have metaphysical properties? That is, is it a thing? Are we talking about like yeah, the Star yeah. Wars idea that it, there's the dark side and the light side, things like that? I think those are fun discussions to have. I'm a philosopher and I love living in that realm. I think one thing that Frame says that's very interesting is even if Augustine is right that evil doesn't actually exist, we still feel the effects of it, or at least we still experience things that we call evil. So in a sense, we, we still feel the effects of something that doesn't exist, which means it actually does exist in some way. So the point is, is that e- we're using evil in the sense of what we experience and feel, not necessarily in does it actually exist, how does it actually exist. So we're talking about more of the effects of evil. That is, someone cut me off in traffic, I feel angry, right? That's something that we can't really deny. Now we can talk about, is that justified or not? Should I do that? That's a different discussion. But we can't necessarily deny that that's actually the experience that we have. So for our purpose today, we're kind of taking evil for granted. Is that okay? Yeah, okay. But, and so with, with evil, we're not saying that it's sin, right? Meaning, is sin equal to evil? Well, right, yeah. How that's. define what evil is? Yeah. Right, so we're going we're gonna to look at that. Well, I don't think we're going to necessarily address that question. Again, that's a very good question. Um, what we're going to primarily do today is look at how the world would define evil, and then we're going to sort of go towards the theistic position, or the Christian position, rather. Once we conclude with the Christian position, then we'll be in a better place to answer questions like that. So I think by the end of the class, I'm not going to answer that question, but we'll be in a better place to answer it. Like the book of Job. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about Job, yes. Job is very helpful, as Dean preached on last week as well. <clears throat> so this argument is meant to prove essentially that a good God can exist. Where's my eraser? Whatever. I think even, uh, Jared, just simply the, what the Bible talks about pre, pre-fall and then after the fall, you know, Satan tempted Eve and said, you will be like God because you will know the difference between good and evil. Even God knows the difference between good and evil, and so do we now, because we're living in a symptomatic world of a problem that we can't solve outside yep. of Christ. So even for the atheist to say, acknowledge that evil exists, is to me, I say, ah, you believe in God. Well, no, I don't. Well, no, because... You can't define evil on your in your word in your paradigm. You cannot define evil because if it's a cultural thing or if it's some kind of a weird thing that you believe in, what's good for you is not good for Keith. And yep. Keith defines which, his own atmosphere. Which I think that those sort of statements are actually helpful to us because if we take the idea of man being without excuse, I think part of what's wrapped up in there is that there is a common experience. So mankind realizes. There's not something quite right. We, we, I mean, we are all very aware of the fall. 
we all very much know our own depravity and our weakness, right? Now, we have a regenerate mind, right? We've been renewed by the Holy Spirit. So we are able to then at least see things clearly or learn to see things clearly. But the point is, is that I think the world as well, that knowledge of God that they're suppressing is why they always hold to they, they do understand that there's something wrong with the world. And we understand that as well, right? Which is why we, we know that Christ is coming to redeem us and redeem the world, right? He's coming to unite all things to Him. So there is a corrective action taking place in the future, right? And I think that helps our case. The fact that people assume that there is a thing called good and evil, even though they might reject the source from which it comes, is helpful to our position. It, it sort of supports our position. So for our purpose today, we're going to a little bit define evil. We can define good and evil. But we're mainly going to define evil from the world's perspective, right? So we're going to look at what this word means for a moment. So throw out some sort of definitions that you maybe used to hold to or that you've heard people say. Suffering. Suffering. Okay, good. Uh, we could say pain, right? Which war. war, right? Which is pretty much the same thing as suffering. Poverty, Poverty which is pain or suffering. So I think we see a, sort of a uh, trend happening here, which is good. Suffering, pain, war, poverty, right? Aggression, Aggression injustice. Very good. Injustice is a great one, um, right? The world isn't fair, things like that. What's interesting about the way that the world defines evil, right? And um, for our purpose, we're going to, yeah, we'll, we'll get to what I think the, the biblical explanation of evil is. But the way the world defines evil is essentially these things are things that we don't like. We don't like them. We don't like suffering in any way, suffering to try to lose weight. Suffering because someone died, suffering because I can't pay my bills, suffering for any reason, right? Pain of any kind, we don't like it. Now, we can make the argument that some suffering is good, some pain is good, some war is good, right? Sometimes war is justified. But the point is, is that we, the reason we call these things evil or bad or negative is because we don't like them, or at least the world calls them that because they don't like them, okay? So... Their likes or dislikes are essentially the standard for what is good and evil. So likewise, they would say, that which I like, that which is pleasurable, that which is pleasurable, that which is uh, peaceful, that which is abundant, those things are good. I like those things. That's why they're good. That's the way the world reasons about the problem of evil. Okay, the interesting thing about this is that the world is then presupposing that their likes and dislikes are the standard. So their own desires, we could say their own autonomy, that is their own ability to think and reason and live and be, their own existence is 
the most important thing. It is the thing that determines what is evil and what is good based on what they like or they dislike. So that is the presupposition, which ultimately means that man is ultimate. I think some of you might be seeing where I'm going here. Man is ultimate or man is supreme. Under this argument, one of the presuppositions or one of the uh, under the objection of how can a good god exist in the universe if evil happens the non-christian the atheist who's raising that question is presupposing that man is ultimate that his own autonomy his own being is the most important so what it turns into really what they're saying and this is the goal of the apologist is to parse this out in the person is to say, so what you mean by how can a good God exist when there's evil in the world is how can a God whose primary goal is to make man happy exist when man isn't always happy? There's another presupposition. They've assumed or presupposed that God's function is to make man happy. Like a big vending machine. Right. And I've heard this from my own family members. They've said to me, certain ones have said to me, I've prayed a lot and God has never helped me. Well, that, so what you mean is that God is just there to help you? That's his role? The problem of evil, the way it's stated as an objection, is assuming that man is ultimate and God's purpose is to make man happy. Those are the two underlying presuppositions of that objection. If those aren't true, that objection has no weight. So anyone who's making the statement that God can exist, a good God can exist because evil exists, is stating that good is what I like and evil is what I dislike. Therefore, how could a God who is supposed to give me what I like allow things to happen to me that I dislike? That's the presupposition. That's the assumption. So what are they assuming? Again, coming right back to it. They're assuming that man is ultimate. God exists to please man. That's the presupposition. And that's where we need to get to if we're going to have a fruitful discussion with someone who raises an objection against God like this. Right? The point is, is that they have presuppositions. We all have presuppositions. We can't help but do that. Right? We all have biases, and I would argue that, just a little tangent here, um, to be biased is to support one's position. And might I ask you, how could you support one's position by using evidence to the contrary? Right? So people say, well, you don't, you're using biased evidence. Well, what it means to be biased is to use evidence that supports my position. How can I support my position by using contrary evidence? can't do that. You ask the, ask the person who disagrees with you to prove their point by using all of your evidence. So unbiasedness essentially is necessary for us to reason logically, to reason soundly. We have to use the evidence that leads to the conclusion. right? They have to assume that man is ultimate in order to object to a perfectly good God allowing evil. 
Okay, they have to make those presuppositions. So that's the point. Anyone who raises this question, I just want you to remember, if you ever hear anyone raise the problem of evil, remember this. They, are, they must assume, and they are assuming, that God, that God exists to please man. Therefore, man is ultimate. Right? Now, our author, John Frame, he has a little quote, uh, one, of the, one of the chapters on this issue, and I'm just going to read it because he, he finishes it great. He says, Unbelievers must surely not be allowed to take their own autonomy for granted in defining moral concepts, that is, defining good and evil. They must not be allowed to assume that they are the ultimate judges of what is right and wrong. Indeed, they should be warned that that sort of assumption rules out the biblical God from the outset and is in that case a faith presupposition just like ours. It's the exact same thing. The unbeliever must know that we reject his presuppositions altogether and insist on subjecting our moral standards, that is, what is good and evil, to God's standards. And if the unbeliever insists on his own autonomy, we may be able to get nasty with him and require him to show how an autonomous self can come to moral conclusions in a godless universe. Exactly what Byron hinted at, right? Here's another one, just to bring it home for that kind of subject. Is man is on the throne or God is on the throne, right? Yep. So if man is on the throne... I'm going to leave this stuff up. And as an example, we can use uh, the military in the United States government, which is an entity in and of itself, going into a sovereign nation like Iraq, invading Iraq, and causing... You know, causing the death of 500,000 Iraqi children through our medical sanctions that we put on the country, and have a lady like Madeleine Albright stand up and said it was justified. I'd do it again if I had to. So, as 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 a Christian who serves the Prince of Peace, I got to look at that and I go, that is evil. Ask the mom who lost her kids in Iraq if that's not evil, regardless of what religion they hold to. So, if if we're simply talking about good and evil and we can really see it on a grand scale when we step back and, and look at what's really happened here. Yeah. And, you know, either, like again, either that she's ultimate, she decides what's right and wrong, or God does. And so that's the whole. Yeah. I was thinking, uh, kept thinking about one of the most culturally important institutions for Americans is Google. And they had their statement, do no evil. I think that was their corporate yeah. policy was do no evil. Yeah. Right? And say, was in the news in the past because they started people within the organization arguing, so what's evil? Yeah. yeah. Right? Because yeah. I think they were doing business in China. Was that evil? You know, yeah, yeah. That, yeah. So is taking was, away American jobs became, evil? That became a big debate. But was you know, right. And I think they ended up taking it out of their Makes sense. Well, yeah, because, yeah, again, what's, what's the standard? Well, how many people work for Google? Yeah. There you got that many different variations. Yep, precisely. So that's the point is that the, the non-Christian, the unbeliever, whoever's raising the objection of the problem of evil is assuming, at least in some regard, that man is the most important or that God exists to make man happy. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a tangent here really quickly because this is going to lead into our next couple classes. I want to talk about uh, just a little bit about strategy. What's interesting here is that the problem of evil, just like the guy Epicurus stated, he actually asks it in the form of a question. 
The interesting thing is that it is a statement. So it's a statement formed as a question. Okay? The interesting thing about people who raise the objection of evil or the, the problem of evil is Christians oftentimes, and I've fallen in this trap way too many times, they state it. They go, how can a good God exist if there's evil in the world? And I immediately jump into my defense of, of the Christian worldview. Well, what have I done there? I have made huge over, oversights, oversteps, right? I'm assuming that we agree on what good and evil is. We, I'm assuming he has a biblical understanding of who God is, right? These are things that you shouldn't do tactfully, strategically. You don't want to fall into this trap. So there is a concept in logic called the burden of proof. Has anyone ever heard of the burden of proof? Good, I'm getting nods. Excellent. So the burden of proof says the person who makes the claim bears the burden of proving that claim to be true or rather defending it. What is our defense? Think about back to the first class. What are we called to defend? 1 Peter 3.15 the hope that is in us, which we define as the hope that we have in Christ's resurrection, which essentially means we are defending the gospel, just like we talked about last week. We are defending and proving the gospel. Our job as Christians is to defend that. It's to defend that worldview, that presupposition. It's not to defend or try to disprove from stating our position again that they're wrong. They are making a claim they bear the burden of showing that that's the case. But what they're very good at is throwing that hook out there, letting us take it, and then we spend all this time trying to prove this position without ever questioning them on what they actually mean, on what they actually believe. Precisely, yes. And that's showing love. Don't you want to be heard too? Exactly. We're going to talk about that, I think, next class. If you want to be an attractive uh, conversation starter, ask questions, right? This is something I struggle with, is I usually would, I mean, if you guys have talked to me, I usually don't ask people questions. It's just, you know, I'm just not good at it, which is funny that I'm teaching this class and telling you to ask questions. But anyways, um, if you ask questions, those are inherently attractive traits to another person. People love talking about themselves. So as an apologist, let's make them defend their position and see how far they get. If they really do hold to this idea, then we need to, under, we need to make them defend what they mean by God. And what you will find is that tactic, that strategy, is far, far, far more fruitful than they make a statement and we just immediately jump into our argument. Yeah. Right? Is it really effective to say, because you get into conversations people where they state something's wrong and just ask them, well, how do you decide what's right and wrong? Yeah. And just, How'd you come to that conclusion? Usually people haven't thought about it. Excellent. Yes. Right? No, they they're haven't. Not, they're not actually thinking. You know, most of us aren't doing a lot of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just speaking And that's the great thing is that if we use these tactics, we can then use them on ourselves. Yeah. If we hold someone to that standard, we then have to hold ourselves to that standard so we can use it on ourselves. Right? So we're going to talk about that in the next class, we're going to talk a lot about the tactics of those things. I forget where I read it, but there was a, a university professor who was an avowed atheist, and he was uh, gave a lecture or something. I, I don't know. Some young girl 
was a Christian, came up to him after the class and asked him a question about evil or whatever it was. And uh, she was real jovial and kind and, and uh, asked him a question. And he said, and he, he ended up becoming a Christian. And, 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 but it was this one little question that this girl had asked him that started him on the road to Christianity. And he said, I remember answering the question to her. And as she, she just simply said, okay, thank you. And she turned away and walked away. And he said, I was left in the hallway with this answer ringing around in my head that just didn't even make sense to him at that point in time. And so it, it really started him on the road to, um, you know, Start thinking. <laughs> Start thinking? Yeah. yeah. Start asking questions. Yeah, answering questions, right? And she just simply asked him a little question about, I forget what it was. You know, it was a pretty good, pretty yeah. good little thing, right? As I like to say, there's a reason why the why is at the end of theology. <laughs> Why? Why? Why should I care? Yeah. All right. So we define sort of what the world's presupposing, right? Now we're going to look at a little bit at the biblical worldview. Now we understand and we claim all the time that, especially as, as Reformed, right, uh, Calvinists or sort of Calvinists, um, maybe some of us, four and a half pointers as some say, um, that God is sovereign, right? God is sovereign over all things. So if we take that verse seriously that we've read a few times about all things holding together in Christ, right? The verse we read last week from, I think, Isaiah 45, where the Lord is saying, I am the Lord and there is no other. I make well-being and I create calamity. All these things come from me. So we understand that the God of Scripture is sovereign over all events, over all things. He is sovereign over that which we call evil and that which we call good. They are part of His purpose and His plan. They are part of His sovereign will. Right? We understand that as Christians, and that's something that we argue for. Okay? So, how does Scripture respond to people who then question God's sovereignty, right? Because that's really what's going on here. Then, in the in the question of the problem or the problem of evil, is they're questioning God's sovereignty, and this is where I said the conclusion is man's rejection of God's sovereign will. That's the issue. That's the sin, essentially, that's leading to this question, right? How does Scripture respond to people who deny God's sovereign will? Well, the Bible gives us ample examples of figures throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament objecting to what God is doing, calling Him unjust. And we'll see precisely how God responds. So the first passage is Job 40, 1-5. So we know the story of Job. And as Dean preached on last week, Satan, even, is an instrument of God in this narrative. Satan does not have autonomy either. God allows him to do something, and essentially God is using him to prove a point, right? So all after all that happens to Job, after everything Job has complained about, essentially, how can you let bad things happen to me? Job is stating the problem of evil, essentially. Verse uh, 40, Job 40, 1-5, And the Lord said to Job, this is God's response to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. 
What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Another passage is Ezekiel 18, 25 through 29. This is after Jerusalem is experiencing judgment uh, for their sin. They're experiencing the wrath of God, or about to. It says, Yet you say, that is Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he does has done, for the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered to turn away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? The interesting thing is that any time in Scripture that someone objects to God's sovereignty, they raise the problem of evil, they demand a defense, they demand God to answer for the things that He has done, it's always reversed. God then becomes the judge and demands that person to answer for their deeds. Amos says, Have evil befell the city, and the Lord not have done it. In the modern translations, it's now has, has calamity beset the city, and the Lord not have done it. But yep. the, you know, the old King James is like, have, Has evil befell the city? So it's like, okay. With God, he's the final arbiter anyway, and death is nothing to him. So the, yep. so the need for defense, the defending of one's actions... When anyone asks God to defend himself, he, he reverses it. He says, you are in no place, no position to demand me defending myself. Right? Let's see. Yeah, we have time to do it. Um, this raises an interesting point, And this is one thing I want to make clear real, real quick. Is that as Christians, we, just like this, we don't want to tra fall into the trap of trying to defend all of God's actions, right? So in that sense, we don't want to give a defense. And on this, I would suggest reading this chapter in the book. John Frame talks about the difference between a defense and what he calls a theodicy. What a defense is, essentially, is that we have to defend or show the goodness of every single one of God's actions. Well, we can't do that, right? Isaiah 55 says, the Lord is saying, my ways are, are mine, they're not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts, right? My understanding, my will is not your will. So we can't really give a defense of every single instance of a bad thing happening, and then we have to show how that can go and turn to good, right? So if the person demands that defense, we need to point him to the scripture and says, God never answers that question. Anytime anyone in Scripture demands a defense from God for all of his actions, he then flips it on them and says, no, you need to defend yourself again from me. So really what we're doing is, is we're using this method, which is a theodicy, which is to say that the presence of evil, 
the presence of suffering, the presence of pain, does not disprove the God of Scripture. So the theodicy is simply to say that the presence of evil is essentially part of God's sovereign will. He is in no position to have to defend every single instance. So this is the method that we're taking. We're taking the theodicy method of showing that God is indeed sovereign and he doesn't have to give a defense of every single action. Now, he does defend certain actions, right? But he does not have to defend every single action. And this is the the model that Scripture gives us. The final passage that I want to read, and we'll probably just end on this note, um, is Romans 9, 10 through 23. And this is a little bit longer, but Paul really just hits it out of the park here. And he's addressing precisely this problem of evil. Okay. It says, verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, that is, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, that is, the children, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, She was told, that's Rebecca, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He will say, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And this this is my favorite part. Will what is molded say to the molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? So here we have God with good and evil in His hands. What we would say are good and evil. Love and hate. Right? He's giving one person prosperity and condemning the other. We'd say, how could a good God do that? It's because He has the prerogative to do so. He is God. The interesting thing about this, and I've uh, this my favorite answer to give people when they say, "Well, how can you know raise the problem of evil?" I say, "Well, yeah, can the clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way?" No, it's not even his position to do so. You give another analogy: can the can the referee in basketball travel? No, the rules don't apply to him. That's a whole other argument. But the point is that God is in a position that He has authority over us. This is what Scripture tells us over and over and over again. God could, if He wanted to, squish us. He doesn't have to do those things. Right? It's His prerogative to have that authority 
and to be in that position to do with us as he wills. Because the purpose is, we'd say, is God's purpose to make man happy or is it something else? It is something else. What is the purpose of God's sovereign will? Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, and he repeats this, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God does not exist for the well-being. He does not exist to give man what he likes. He does not exist to give glory to man. God exists, His purpose, Christ's purpose, the purpose of the Holy Spirit, is to bring glory to the Father. Vice versa. The Father's purpose What he strives for is bringing glory to the Son and to the Spirit. We are vessels of bringing glory to God. So when we understand that as our presupposition, then the problem of evil disappears. Because evil is no longer that which we dislike. Good is no longer that which we like. They become instruments of God's purpose for glorifying himself. Cleansing that you get in Christ is such. That's why it's so uh, amazing to me. It's like Joseph said to his brothers, "What you meant for evil, God meant for good." You know, and as we look at what he went through, and it's like, wow, you know. And that, but the cleansing that came after the forgiveness of his brothers was probably yep. pretty sweet. Yep. And it's funny because I hear all the time. I mean, if you're on Facebook at all, you hear people. It's just pervasive that. You know, Jeremiah 29.11 and, and verses like that. It's like, uh, Christians are, oh, God just desires the best for me, and that means I'm going to have, you know, a great job and lots of food and all that stuff. The only thing that Christ promises His disciples in the New Testament is that they will suffer. <laughs> That's the only thing He promises them. Now, he promises to be with them in their suffering. I, th- I think Christians have, <laughs> I think there's this default notion with most Christians in the West and in America because we've done such a bad job of really sharing the gospel and sharing who God is to the unbeliever that well, most Christians have this idea, so therefore most unbelievers have this idea that God is just like this cosmic Santa Claus and uh, who just, um, you know, I mean, you hear that kind of preaching from Joel Osteen and all these prosperity preachers where God is just this, this happy-go-lucky guy in the sky, cosmic being who just wants to just uh, give you all these presents as long as you want it bad enough from him. And it really is kind of like an Eastern mysticism that has seeped into Christianity and perverted it. But what, what I've found, like, I've talked to a few atheists where um, I've just started explaining to them proper theology and just told them that, um, you know, like, well, well, why is there evil in the world? And I had a conversation with one guy and I started explaining how they, they, they don't believe in God because God hasn't enabled them to believe in him yet. And they had never, it was radically... Like, and they've never heard proper theology explained. <laughs> it, it was just like a radical concept to them. And they wanted to hear more about that. They, yep. they were actually interested in knowing more about that, that yep. kind of thing. And yep. I thought that was cool. Yeah, and that's precisely what we mean by being the salt and light of the world. Defending and articulating the gospel properly 
if we look at how people respond to it in the New Testament, they're never like, oh, I've heard that before. It's like, whoa, this is totally different. What do we have here? The problem of evil is assuming something completely opposite. They're assuming that God exists to make man happy. We can come along and say, no, the Bible teaches the exact opposite. God's purpose is to make to glorify Himself. We are His vessels to do that, to accomplish that. He created us to worship Him. This is something, I think exactly what Cameron said, when we articulate this to people, most of the time their jaws will hit the floor and they'll go, I've never heard that before. That's a perfect opportunity. right? Because of their own presuppositions. They are assuming, oh, I've prayed all the time and God never helped me. Well, so God exists to make you happy? That's not necessarily the case, right? Now, the good thing for us, and we're late, but whatever. Um, <laughs> church doesn't start for another 15 minutes anyways. Um, the good thing is, is that we don't live in a universe where God just does whatever He wants with us, and there's no hope for us, right? We've read previously Colossians chapter 1, uh, verses 19 and 20. This is just the conclusion. For in Him, that is Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Christ's purpose in bringing glory to God, to Himself, is to reconcile us back to Him. That is the good news. The good news is that We stand convicted before God, yet Christ comes and reconciles us to Him. God Himself dies for the people who violated His commands. God Himself, as as we've heard many times, Christianity is the only story where the hero dies for the villain. This is the Gospel. That we are not left with, oh great, God can do whatever He wants to us. That's true, but He doesn't. He gives us reconciliation. God's prerogative is to destroy us. We deserve the wrath of God, yet He pours it out on Himself. So along, along that lines, what a lot of people don't realize, when you have that foundational belief and have that proper understanding of the God of Scripture, the, the real problem is no longer the problem of evil, but the problem of good. Because if we are sinners and we deserve to be separated from God for eternity for just a second, just for sinning for just a second, like Satan sinned for a second, shut off from God forever. Adam sinned and Eve sinned for a second, shut off from God forever. The, the real problem is the problem of good. But then, but then a greater problem of evil that no one really thinks about is why is it that God would be evil to allow evil to himself? Mm-hmm. Why is it that God would allow the most evil thing in the world, which would be the, the sacrifice of himself, the second person of the Trinity, to take upon God's own wrath, which was undeserved? It's, it's so, like, the, yeah, the real problem then, if there is a problem, is not why does God allow evil happen to man, but is how can a good God allow evil ha- to happen to himself? That's the real question. But if we get to that point, we are in a great position. We are in within Christian theology, right? And that's the question. Those are the questions that the Bible, I think, gives answers to. But for our purposes today, that's what we need to get to. Okay, very good. Thank you.